Welcome to the Tradfest podcast, brought to you by the Temple Bar Company. Hello from Temple Bar in Dublin. Today, we're honoured to be talking to one of Ireland's most creative fiddle players. That's Cuiveen O'Rahalik. Cuiveen, it's fantastic to speak to you. Well, thanks very much for asking me to do it. Uh, lovely to, to have a chat. Oh, thanks a million for taking part. Really appreciate it. I suppose the first question I'd have you, it is Cuiveen O'Rahalik. There are those that pronounce it slightly differently. I Yeah, I, I'm not too picky now. Once, uh, once I'm... Anyone says anything to me, I'm I'm grateful. So <laughs> <laughs> you're happy to be spoken to. Okay. Uh, actually, that's interesting. Uh, I know that you're from the area that I live in now, uh, in Ballantyre in Dublin. But I was down in Dundrum Village quite recently, and I met an old buddy of yours, actually, uh, Michael oh. Tobrady of the Chieftains, uh, an influential man. Yes. Oh, wonderful, wonderful pure wonderful gentleman and uh, a huge influence on me and um he's a great friend of my my mother's and my father's as well and uh yeah i had a great fortune to um to end up with with michael as a teacher for for many years when i started out playing music um you mentioned i think barton road to me just before we we started the yes. program there there was a great man uh, on that road called eddie mccaffrey who there was ran the local branch of cultus when i was growing up and i'd started playing the fiddle uh going to fiddle classes but i was sitting outside this class waiting for my sister to finish and eddie had a great habit of uh if he saw a kid sitting there doing nothing he just grabbed them and throw them into the nearest class whatever instrument it might be <laughs> and go in there now you might learn something and so that's how i ended up uh with michael tuberty as a teacher he opened the door and threw me in and uh i started learning the tin whistle from michael tuberty of course i had no idea who he was at the time and um, the the years certainly rectified <laughs> that mistake this extraordinary uh, musician and man who's who initially you know obviously with Kyotori Coolan and and Sean O'Reilly the uh, had made a, a big impact and then with the Chieftains of course and um but he was a wonderful teacher and the the whistle class you'd learn maybe a, a new tune each week but then you'd stay on for the flute class and uh, he had a lovely way of doing that where you didn't learn a new tune in the flute class you'd put the tune you'd learned the previous week you'd learned it on the whistle now this week you play that one on the flute so your fingers already knew what to do and because it took that much more air you'd take a break and he might have a tape recording of some of the teed recorded years ago like i remember tapes of josie mcdermott and the likes of uh, dennis murphy and all of those so he'd bring in those tapes and uh, you'd listen to them and have a little discussion and sometimes he might set you a task like well, write me an essay about you know Josie McDermott go away and find out as much as you can about him and uh, so it was a really lovely kind of way of of introducing us to characters and um, and some of the old music as well. There's no doubt a, a beautiful personality when you'd look at himself and maybe Eddie uh, you'd know what Eddie was saying to you he was fairly direct Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, such a passion for music, oh, you know. He really, I've I've an awful lot to thank thank him for. Really, um, I, I know he's a he was a fantastic man. I know that uh, energy, like and to spare, and absolutely committed to the tradition. And that was his that was that was his reason for getting people involved. He was just committed that the culture would kind of move on to the next generation. 
and and I think he succeeded. <laughs> oh yeah, there's no doubt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Now you've mentioned whistle and concert flute. You also mentioned fiddle, and you mentioned your sister. What about your family? Actually, you mentioned your parents as well. How many in the family? So just mum and dad and uh, myself and my sister. That that was it growing up. And, and where did your folks come from? Uh, North Longford, around Drumlish and Balnamuck. So it'd be good Packy Dolan territory in terms of the, the music. He'd, he was from, I think, the same townland as my father. Um, that's gone a long time back. You know, Packy Dolan would have been uh, in New York around the same time as Michael Coleman and made wonderful recordings uh, back there in the, the 20s and 30s. But so there had been a strong tradition in music, I suppose, maybe in the intervening decades. It it shifted focus maybe to country and Western a little bit. Uh, but um, there certainly was a love of music there. And my father, for instance, remembers um, his own father having dances in the barn, in their own barn. And people would, local fiddler Johnny Hurston would come and play and uh, people would dance. And so so I guess the love of, of music had been there. For, and the same from my mother's side. Uh, her own grandmother played the melodeon and, um, and her mother, my grandmother, uh, danced and had a load of the kind of little songs and things like that so uh the, they definitely had a love of music and and before we were born uh they had a uh a, a kind of they'd follow music around they lived in shannon and they'd go up to corafin i think every weekend to find out what music was being played and they i think for their honeymoon they went off to music festivals and uh, all sorts of adventures like that so yeah that's very much where, where my own interest in music came from i guess well being from county clare myself and a trip to corafin was never a bad idea if you were looking to hear some traditional music uh, did they play a bit of music by the way clearly? well they didn't at that point and i guess it was this common myth that people think that oh i'm too old to learn and uh, for whatever reason people seem to believe that until um much later in life then long after we'd uh you know learnt our music and gone mam took up the concertina and then subsequently dad took up the accordion concertina <laughs> and uh, and so now mam's been playing for for a, a long time and she gets you know she's great and she gets immense enjoyment out of it she has a huge network of friends and people she plays music with and it's a uh, you know for anyone out there who thinks they're too old to learn i <laughs> i think it's a wonderful uh, it had certainly added a huge richness to, to her life and, and to my father's life uh, it's funny the other thing uh, my own folks would have been similar to your own in that way in that they didn't play but they used to say asher it skips a generation sometimes but it didn't yeah. in your case they went back for it mm -hmm. Yeah, they went back for us. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, yeah. we mentioned Michael Tubbery there, and you also mentioned the fiddle, of course. So, who would have been who would have been your influences then? Who were you learning your fiddle playing from? Uh, going to the local branch of Coltis, let's say. Well, the local branch, uh, I started out with Mary Grevy, and um, then also Mary O'Halloran. Uh, so they they were two great teachers I had there, and um, I. 
I also through friends I'd met, uh, you probably remember Gormanstown. Oh, indeed. <laughs> and it's a long time ago now, yeah. but, um, and I think I'd been, for whatever reason, I just, I wasn't in love with the fiddle and I was on the point of giving it up. And these friends in Gormanstown uh, said, well, before you give it up, you should go out to, to Marino on a Saturday morning. And there's a fellow there called Phelan O'Reilly. And uh, we think he might, you might just click with him. So I took their advice and went out to Phelan on a Saturday morning. And, um, uh, and you know, just it, it really clicked, I suppose. So I, he, he was a, a great influence on me then. Um, and in combination, Mary Greedy and Mary O'Halloran, I was getting a, a huge amount of kind of, uh, of music from, from all of them and different influences. God, that, was uh, an, that was an inspired suggestion to you. It was, I and and it was gas. You know, Phelan, uh, he was brilliant, but he he wouldn't be your the typical idea you'd have of an inspiring teacher because yeah. he was quite gruff and he might uh, he'd just kind of say to you, "Play me the tune," and then you'd play it, and he'd say, "Play it again." And uh, the highest compliment the, you'd go home bouncing if you got this was. He'd say, oh, I suppose I'd have to give you a new tune so that you played it so well that you got to that level of praise that you were getting a new tune. That's that was as high as the praise got. Well, uh, it was a good indicator anyway, fair player. Yeah, yeah. But your kids are funny that way, like for whatever reason, that that dynamic was what, uh, what you know, got me going. And I really wanted to work hard to get another tune from Phelan the next week. <laughs> That's very interesting. But, but he was brilliant as well. He'd kind of tell you to, to go and listen to certain music or might give you a tape. I think, let's say, the likes of, of Fred Finn, Peter Horn, I think, would have been from Phelan or maybe the McDonald's of Al Nafad and a whole raft of kind of different influences. It but, is very uh, interesting that people were not just passing on the music, but they were actually passing on the knowledge as well and kind of directing you to musicians that were before their time almost as well and that they were kind of linking you back to that you know almost the origins of the species if you like definitely and i think that that really sunk in as a lesson if i if i heard a tune somebody playing a tune i then wanted to know where do they get it can i find a recording of that person playing it and then where did that person get it can we go back a, a generation uh, find a recording in the archives and see can you even go back from them did they have you know uh did they get it from a book like Petrie's music or O'Neill's or something like that? And see, just can you reverse engineer back to the as far back as you can to the source and then try and understand how how each person, uh, their own personality became imprinted on what they believed was the <laughs> the original, you know. But of course, you can't have the original. Everyone imparts their own beauty to a thing. And uh, it's kind of a lovely, nearly archaeology of music you get through through following those trail of breadcrumbs. Yeah, again, I find that very interesting because when you hear some of the, the you know, newly discovered collections, uh, old collections of music and you hear tunes that were played 60, 70, 80 years ago uh, and that they're just slightly different variations of what's being played now, I just think there's a beautiful warmth about that. And it can be just a single note yeah. and suddenly it, it gives, a, gives the tune a whole new dimension and magic. I'm taking then that this curiosity that you had for kind of following uh, those sort of instructions or originally, let's say, uh, about researching the tunes. Was that that got you interested in maybe doing a bit of work with the Irish Traditional Music Archive? 
Well, it was through Michael Tuberty, actually. So in uh, I think I, w- I was in one of the very first years of transition year in school. Before that, you'd only did fifth year. There was no sixth year. Um, but I think maybe my year or the year before was the first time they tried out this transition year. So after your junior search, you had this this year that at that point wasn't very well defined, but they had the idea of work experience. And I knew Michael was on the board of the Irish Traditional Music Archives and he managed to get in touch with Nicholas and uh, float this idea of uh, having me in as a, you know, just on one week's work experience. (laughs) So that that's how, how my own relationship with the Traditional Music Archives started. I went in and did the week and loved it, got on great with everyone there. And then I think perhaps the next year uh, I did summer work there. And then throughout my entire life in college, I was working part time at the, at the archives. So but it all came down to, to Michael initially um, kind of putting in the good words and okay. get me there's work experience uh, a decent man as we said at the start speaking of college actually you studied theoretical physics in trinity college got on pretty I did, well yeah uh, what, is there do you, have you found any relationship let's say with that and and what you do musically oh sure you, you can you can i can uh blow a whole load of hot air that sounds like it's connected <laughs> but whether it is or not here no, i but don't you know, know blow away <laughs> no, but I suppose, you know, any studying anything informs the way you think. Uh, I guess that's what you're that's what training is, is uh, setting up certain certain approaches to problem solving and kind of patterns of thought. And so I suppose my own thinking on music would would be very much informed by that scientific approach of kind of breaking something down into into kind of the elements that combine to make it what it is and interrogating interrogating each one of them holding them up kind of seeing can you you know find the the quantum parts that (laughs) combine to make that that element and uh, so i would i'd have a I have a whole load of kind of connections in my own head. I saw you perform actually in Rathfarnham Castle, which is pretty close to your own home place at Tradfest. Yes. And uh, you were experimenting or something with your, with your with the fiddle and sounds and loops and stuff. And you said, I was looking for something here and I wrote a little piece of code in order to achieve it. So there was the connection there. Definitely, the the computer coding is is a really <laughs> rich area to get into, and I mean I've only scratched the surface, but but it's yeah, it's great. Computers are so powerful and they're so uh, flexible in terms of what you can achieve with them. Let's say as opposed to buying a a piece of hardware like a you know a, a pre made guitar pedal, with the coding you can really um, mold something to fit yourself, and have it evolve over time. So that's something that that really appeals to me. Uh, anything that can evolve over time, you know, like like my own thoughts, <laughs> I well, would hope they evolve rather than entrench. I'm curious as to like if your background is Longford, let's say from your parents' point of view, how you got that interest in. Schlieve Lokra music. I know you're interested in the pipes as well, and I'll get to that in a minute, but the Schlieve Lokra music, how did you, where was the attraction in that for you? I, I have a very strong memory of one of those flute classes of uh, Michael Tuberty bringing in a recording of Dennis Murphy um, playing that. Uh, what is it? Uh, and 
and I was just fascinated with it was nearly like um, an aural illusion where the rhythm was and I think I think there was a very subtle thing going on with the bow I, I guess up to that point I'd been used to thinking of jigs as the one two three one two three one yeah. two three one two three you know the the two groups of three notes per bar but Dennis was doing something where it shifted to you know you were going along one two three one two three and then it was one two one two one two which is adds up to six as well but you're slightly different emphasis and it really disoriented me and hooked me and I I became addicted to it uh, and followed that that again that trail into um you know the, the star above the garter and then trying as we were talking about trying to follow the breadcrumbs back. So through that, got into Padraig O'Keefe, who had taught him and uh, all the associated musicians from that area. And and I guess it just really became part of me. If you listen to something so much uh, that it is kind of goes down into your bones and becomes part of who you are, is kind of what it felt like to me at the time. The inquisitive mind took you back there. I mentioned Ilan Pipes. Uh... I, I I think you actually went making illum pipes at one stage, did you? I did. Yeah, I spent I think three years kind of learning how to make them. Um, and but I think the initial interest, uh, when I was about eleven, I think I'd been playing music for about a year or two. At that point, uh, Mam got it somehow. Had the idea that uh, I must have said something, or I don't know if she intuited, but she thought, "Let's go down to the Willie Clancy week and." get a practice set and you can learn the pipes so we went down in a tent and <laughs> camped for the week got totally washed out of it and i trooped up every day to the ballard road and um and started learning the pipes so over the years kind of developed that love of the pipes and refined what it was that i loved about them and i think the flat sets the sound of the flat sets really got me um and i and my desire then to to make the pipes, I think at that point there weren't too many people playing flat sets or making flat sets. And I thought ah, this could be a way of life. Um, so I went off and, and tried making them for three years until I realized I was not really a craftsman. And uh, oh, sure, that's OK, too. That's I guess that's what your 20s are for, figuring out what you're at and what what you're not at. <laughs> well, of course, then you built a great musical relationship with one of the great Ellen Pipers anyway in Mick O'Brien. Absolutely. And I think ultimately I, I reckoned it was probably uh, more rewarding to play with Pipers than <laughs> to try to play the pipes yourself. <laughs> and certainly when that Piper is Mick O'Brien. Um, but yeah, so we, th that kind of, that partnership came about totally by accident in a way. Uh, I was in the, the Pipers Club in Henrietta Street, uh, I think around the year 2000. And I was buying a bit of Reed making cane and Mick was in doing the same thing. And uh, I overheard that he was heading down to the Johnny Doran thin hole down in Glendalock. And I kind of said, oh, that sounds interesting. He said, well, sure. Do you want to lift? <laughs> I'll bring you down. And uh, down we went and Mick being Mick being the incredible, generous soul that he is, he kind of invited me to join him in a spot on the concert and uh, we'd never played together before so we picked out a few tunes and it turned out that we had all the same kind of references of the music we really loved like all the Seamus Ennis stuff all the Willie Clancy stuff all the Dennis and Julia stuff we all 
we both kind of knew it like the back of our hands. So when we sat down to play this, this kind of, there was a really strong connection around that shared uh, body of listening, I suppose. And, um, and it went from there. I actually thought you produced, I think it's a Kitty Lie Over was the name of the CD you produced. Yes, oh, that was, I think, stunning. 2003 it came out, but we probably 2001 that we started work on it. And, uh, of course, that Kitty Lie Over comes from the, you know, the 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 tune, The Frost mm-hmm. is All Over, and Seamus Ennis singing it would be our, yeah. our kind of reference. Seamus Ennis, of course, uh, another influential figure in Irish traditional music. You're hugely influential yourself at this stage, and you said you were you discovered you weren't a craftsman. But you seem to know what you like in a fiddle, at least, because an ordinary four-string fiddle is one thing to you, but you had other things in mind, and Hardanger came your way. Yeah, well, I suppose, like, I I had thought that playing music, there's two parts to it, uh, if you want to get better. (laughs) One is getting better at, at letting what's inside out, and the other is improving the quality of what's inside in the first place. Um... And I suppose I got to a point where I felt like uh, I had something I wanted to let out, but uh, I couldn't let it out. And I was trying twisting the pegs of the fiddle all different ways. Uh, I, you know, tuning it way down, tune the relationship between the strings being different, you know, rather than being in fifths, tuning it in a combination of fifths, fourths, thirds and, and other intervals. And so I was uh, getting closer to kind of something that would allow the sound out but through another totally chance encounter i i came across the hardanger fiddle and it it blew my mind altogether just the, the sound of it and it started over the space of a, a few years after that uh it started working its way into the bones until i thought i actually need to get one of these and start playing it um and yeah it's um i, I kind of what's different about it is that uh, there's sympathetic strings so they add kind of an echo and a shimmer to the sound as if you have a little reverb unit sitting inside the fiddle itself and it also has a very flat bridge so let's say the style of of um fiddling from dennis and julia or podrick where there's quite a lot of double stops and droning um the flat bridge makes it very very easy to accomplish that in fact it's it's more difficult to play on one string on a hardanger uh, than not um and yeah so i suppose that's that's part of my attraction to that instrument also i suppose there was the sound of the pipes uh, inside trying to get out with the extra drones and the regulators kind of and and again with the the hardanger with those sympathetic stro- strings giving a bit of a drone and a shimmer to the sound um uh, that kind of allowed me incorporate a bit of that into the fiddle playing rather than having to do it on the pipes <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, but you took it a step further then what's this hardanger demore is that or demore i don't know how you pronounce yeah, that yeah 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 demore yeah so that's so the hardanger itself is pitched kind of above everyone else it's up from concert pitch it's maybe can be two three four sem- semitones higher so when you go trying to play with other people it's it poses a problem uh, you know, not everyone would want to tune their fiddle strings up three semitones because you'd break the fiddle, probably destroy it. And similarly with the hardanger, when you tune the strings down, it loses all the tension and the brightness and the the kind a lot of the magic about it. So my friend Dan Truman had come up with this idea for 
an instrument with the properties of the hardanger, but designed to be played uh, at, at the pitch the rest of the world is at, um, and also have an extra string at the bottom to give you access to kind of a some of the, let's say, the viola range rather than just the violin range. So that's kind of where the idea came from. And um, and Dan, Dan is based in the States, but when he got his uh, kind of prototype of the Hardanger de More, he actually was visiting Ireland for the year with his family. So I called over to his house and uh, the day he got it and, uh, you know, played it. And I, I'm sure you've had this experience as well, Kieran, where, where you've been playing an instrument and uh, you think it's okay, but then <laughs> some yeah. of you encounter another instrument that is just like love at first sight. It's you can't stop thinking about it afterwards. It's just like plays itself. It's just pure magic, and uh, that was that was what happened with me and the viola de more or the hardanger de more, and I think I managed to hold off maybe for twenty four hours before writing to the the maker and asking him to make one for me. And thus started a whole new sort of revolution for you, certainly in fiddle playing. I mentioned about your combination with uh, with uh, Mick O'Brien. You also played, of course, with Brendan Begley. But then, of course, uh, the international stage beckoned with the gloaming and this is how we fly. So just curious about those two bands and how they came together. Um, people may not have actually put you all together, but how, how, how did that happen, let's say, with the gloaming? <laughs> With the gloaming, uh, it I think uh, Irla and Martin obviously had known each other since they were kids, and they'd never really worked together. So they'd been having had having this ongoing conversation over the space of a few years. Of, oh, we must do something together. Oh yeah, we should. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that that went on for a few years, and then uh, I think it had evolved into the idea of Irla maybe producing an album for Martin and Dennis, um, but. Then the that idea shifted, and they thought, "How about putting together a few lads and, and um, you know, seeing what comes of it?" And they thought of myself and Dennis, and then Thomas. Uh, I think had no uh, Martin had known him uh, from when Thomas was a kid, and so they just kind of asked us, "Would we be up for it?" And and we got together, started making a bit of a racket, and. That's what came out of it. Just to some record, I have to say, did you ever <laughs> expect the success that it has hit? I, no, not at all. Certainly I didn't anyway. Um, uh, and yeah, sure. <laughs> you couldn't, you could, you know yourself, there's no predicting success or failure really of a project, but uh, very grateful for, for what, you know, what we achieved musically and very nice that, uh, that people liked it and, um, continue but, to like it and hopefully <laughs> I, I know that you, you you did achieve all that amount musically but you also achieved I think something else in Irish traditional music I think you actually gave it another you gave a lot of belief to other musicians that you know what we do is is worthwhile if you know what I mean you, you, you brought it to a different level to a much different audience yeah and I guess a lot of that is you know is out of your control and I wouldn't necessarily want to to worry too much about it or get hung up on it and it's it's brilliant that it achieved that if it hadn't achieved that if it had gone unnoticed mm. i mean i think i'd be equally happy in terms of what matters to me is is what you achieve musically and artistically um 
but at the same time incredibly grateful for the success of it. Oh, I was just I just thought it was fantastic and, and a credit to you and that you can be so modest about it, but it was just a credit with what you did achieve musically. I just felt for the tradition itself. I'm from, you know, I'm sort of deep within the whole thing myself, like since my own youth. So when when you'd see a band of people or a group of people getting together like that and actually being able to kind of get the message across uh, to uh, an unsuspecting audience and to develop the audience like that, I just think it has contributed uh, quite a lot. You you needn't say that, but I'm going to say it if that's okay with you. <laughs> Very good. No, no, fair play. And it is appreciated. Um, yeah. What about the band This Is How We Fly? Well, that, that came about... Um, from the Dublin Fringe Festival, Rosha Gowan, who you'd know would be the, the daughter of Cahill Gowan and Myraid McGonnell. Um, she was the director of the Dublin Fringe Festival, I think, in two, it's 10 years ago, actually 10 year, years ago, the band is 10 years old this month. Um, and she asked me, she approached me and said, I'd like you to, to put together a show for Dublin Fringe Festival 2010. And um, so I had a load of projects on the go and I kind of said, well, how about this one? She said, no. How about that one? No. I said, well, tell me what you want. And she said, I want something that nobody has ever heard before. Right. <laughs> and uh, and I went away and thought about that. And I asked um, three three musicians that I'd had had really had huge admiration for but i also had earmarked as people i really wanted to work with uh, i thought they were doing fascinating things individually but uh, i also felt a kind of a musical connection with them and um so petter berndalen is a percussionist from sweden and his description of what he does he plays fiddle tunes on the drums and, and it's really like nothing I'd ever heard before. Uh, Nick Garris is a percussive dancer from Michigan in the States, and he's the the dancing counterpart to to Petter. He he is playing the tunes with his feet, and I think we had we had just played a very small amount together down in Baltimore, and it was magic playing with Nick. Um, he kind of. I don't know. It, there's just a, a real conversation between between the two instruments. His instrument being the feet and mine being the fiddle. But um, you know, it's it's doesn't matter what the instrument is when there's a conversation happening and a give and take and throwing ideas at each other and reacting to them. That's I think one of the most satisfying things you can get from from music. And um, then Sean McElaine from Dublin, who's a back, who has a background in jazz and free improvisation. But we had been meeting up regularly, not with any idea of ever performing together, but just to trade ideas and for me to learn a little about the ideas of, of you know, jazz and improvisation. And he was fascinated with uh, particularly slow airs and Shano singing and the kind of microtonality that uh, traditional music is full of and the kind of colours of notes. Um, so we'd ha been having this really nice uh, conversation musically of, of trading ideas about our respective areas. And so they all, I sent a message to all three of them and they were all up for it, which was amazing. And um, we did our first gig and it was being part of the Fringe Festival totally sold out and um, and the reaction to it was kind of overwhelming and the music felt amazing so we decided this we can't have this never happen again we formed the band and, and it continues 
Well, happy 10th anniversary then. Thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, oh. we'd love to be, you know, obviously had big plans for the 10, 10 year anniversary in terms of performance and uh, couldn't happen because of the the pandemic but we're plans continue and we have a great relationship now with the solstice art center in navin belinda quirk there has been hugely supportive of the band we have a really exciting project we've been working on with Earlo linard as a guest and we've created a whole whole new project really with him a whole new body of material that takes things in a kind of a different direction for the band so uh, we're really looking forward to the point where we can share that and any idea when you will be able to share it well sure your guess is as good as mine you're not going to share it online is what i'm I'm probably getting at oh i don't know uh, well we we've shared a little like a small little <laughs> video clip or whatever but mm. um i think i think we really we want to get together we probably want to record we want to develop it a bit further and yeah. uh We'll certainly keep an eye out for that. And of course, the gloaming, you get together occasionally. I'm just, how do you manage your time then? Because you do solo as well and you work with other people. Uh, does just one thing fall into another or are you that well organised yourself? I, w- I wouldn't be super well organised. Uh, but I suppose, you know, it, over the years, sometimes some projects take up more oxygen and then they fade a little and another project will take up more oxygen. It's not like I've got a, any, you know, master plan. Yeah, it's just it's... kind of whatever seems to be, you know, r- rising, you kind of, if people want more of one particular thing, well, sure, that's great. If you can get a gig, then fabulous. If if not, well, that's OK, too. Um, it doesn't mean you abandon it or or whatever, but uh, yeah, I suppose that's that's part of the joy is mm. to have all these little different pots on the boil at different stages of evolution and uh, maturity. Uh, fantastic. Um, what were you doing actually, by the way, when the world almost came to a stop? Well, I I I had I was about to lo- uh, release our second album myself and Dan Truman, and we had a load of really nice gigs lined up <laughs> uh, and I'm very excited about this album uh, called The Fate of Bones. Uh, Dan, as I mentioned earlier, is the guy who came up with mm. the idea for the Hardanger Demore, but he's also the first person I ever saw playing a Hardanger fiddle back in the year 2000. And, um, uh, and we released an album in 2014 called Lai Du, and this, this was now the second album. It's all material that we've written ourselves for kind of two interlocking 10 string fiddles. And it's really, <laughs> really cool. I mean, it's, uh, I, I really love it. It gives me so much satisfaction. And um, anyway, that, that was all about to happen in March and April, but obviously it's, it's had to be, uh, wrapped up and put away until such a time as it can happen again. Fantastic to hear your yeah. enthusiasm for it, actually. Um, so what have you been doing then during this time? Over the last six months, I can't believe it's six months now. Uh, it's wild, yeah. yeah. Well, I I've, I have not felt much music in my bones, if I'm honest, Kieran. I haven't been playing, I haven't been writing, I haven't been listening, really. Um, I've been you know doing other stuff around the house and uh we have an allotment that i grow a load of vegetables getting great satisfaction from that um and tipping away at the odd bit here and there but uh no i find it i find it hard to 
to plan in a way because it's so uncertain the future and i suppose i've also i'm also quite happy to take a break um it's something i've frequently done from time to time probably never this long but uh certainly three months without playing a note uh, happens in the past and i i've often been grateful for it you kind of come back fresh and um with renewed enthusiasm so i haven't tried to push it or think that there's anything wrong with not feeling like playing but yeah that's that's been <laughs> where i'm at i suppose well no but from my conversations with other artists over the last six months as i said which i cannot believe uh it's quite similar actually uh that the the initially anyway it was the, i suppose the shock of you know what's happening here and sure it'll be a, for a brief period and then maybe the understanding that it was going to last a bit longer than that some people just didn't like yourself they didn't can i do much playing others decided to try and write stuff and that but it is i suppose whatever gets you through it and you seem to have plenty going on uh with your allotment and that uh, to keep you <laughs> occupied and around the house as well what what were you growing in the allotment by the way what wasn't I growing? <laughs> or what wasn't I trying to grow more accurately? Well, I presume, like everything else you do, I presume you were successful at it anyway. Ah, uh, no. Well, <laughs> I, 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 no, adequate, I would say. Below, probably below average, but it's very satisfying anyway. I, lo- I love, uh, I love the process. It's, it's magic, like you plant a seed and it, it grows. You see the entire life cycle in, in the space of a season. It's it's yeah. pretty magic well, uh, for anyone say, sure. out there. As long as he's happy, the creator. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want one of my questions actually, and um, we're 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 getting towards the close of this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I must say, Quivine. Um, yeah, you, yeah, like you haven't, you haven't dropped. Your plans are there; they're ready to go. At least when we all kind of get the go ahead for that. But you said you hadn't played much music. You said you hadn't listened to much music. But have you listened to any? Or we ask people like who they've been listening to, or what has kind of given them a bit of solace, uh, whether it is uh, you know for hope or whether just comfort uh, during this time. Is there anybody in particular that you were listening to? Yeah, there's there's some old favorites. I just keep going back to again, again, again. Um, so Mark Hollis, his the three albums, they, like these aren't traditional now at all. This mm-hmm. is just what I, I find maybe for the last two years, I've been nearly on a uh, diet exclusively of these three albums, which is the Mark Hollis solo album, but the two Talk Talk albums before that, Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock. Um, and, you know, th- let's say Paul Brady's Welcome Here Again. Um, Things like uh, Vladimir Godar, Magnificat, that track I, I really love. Um, let's see, what else? Jan Garberg and the Hilliard Ensemble, <laughs> epic stuff like that. Um, and I don't know, there's kind of, you know, Astral Weeks, stuff like that. That's just old favourites that feel like a a well, well-worn blanket of comfort that you that you know and love. Certainly, we've had a little bit of our uh, uh, astral weeks, of course, uh, in the last few days with the with the the um, Van Morrison seventy fifth. Um, I was going to say anniversary, but his seventy fifth birthday, which was quite a celebration of his music. Would you Would you listen to a lot of his music? No, well, I I'd listen to that album a lot. Uh, that that'd be the main one. The odd time something else, but I. You know, I suppose I can be a creature of habit when I find something I love. Yeah. I just listen to it over and over. But I do. I think there's something about that album. The there's a looseness to it. You can kind of feel the the fact that it, 
nothing was nailed down. You can hear mistakes uh, happening towards the ends of tracks. And um, I love all of that stuff to me. That's just the the magic of uh, the character. And I, I'd much rather that than something well polished and, you know, every last thing being in exactly the right place. I hope he's not listening to you talking about his mistakes. Well, sure, he, he knows, like, he 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 thinks about that himself. Like, I think I think maybe Astral Weeks wouldn't be his favourite. And I think he, um, <laughs> yeah, that process, there's a reason it, it didn't happen again, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but that's that, that energy to it is something I really love. So we look forward to the launch of the album with yourself and Dan Truman for sure we look forward to this is how we fly getting back there you have the project of course with the band and Irla the gloaming i.e. the planner how does that work for you do you plan that or do you just kind of decide at the beginning of the year maybe we'll do a few gigs this year no I think that's generally planned pretty far out uh, so we'll see we'll see hopefully you know it'd be great if it could happen again but sure who knows what can ever happen again in the current situation i don't know the idea of like uh, a thousand people jamming into a, a room to listen to music is currently a bit unthinkable but i'm sure we'll get beyond it it's amazing to think that we could ever even get to that point but I know. look yeah uh, i have to say it's been a pleasure and an honor to chat to you Quivine. and uh, just interesting that i bumped into michael tuberty on my my travels locally recently and to find out that his own influence maybe on your own life and your development is just really really nice and lovely and heartwarming actually to hear it uh Quivine, thanks a million for joining us on the podcast an absolute pleasure kieran thanks for having me thank you for listening to the tradfest podcast for more information on tradfest go to tradfest.ie tradfest is brought to you by the temple bar company